What's up? You're listening to another episode of Writing Better. I'm your host, Timmy Bauer, and my guest today is Rose Friel. Rose uh, is a professional in the publishing industry, and that's the topic of our episode. We're going to be talking about all of the different ways that someone could work in the publishing industry that maybe they'd never thought of before. And I'm so excited to talk about it. Rose, thank you so much for being a guest on my show. I am so excited to be here. Thank you, Timmy, for inviting me. So, Rose, uh, if you could just start off telling me background on what is your journey into the publishing? Did you always want to be in the publishing industry? How did you get into it? Uh, what did that look like? And what exactly do you uh, do? Yeah. Okay. So the first time I said I wanted to work in book publishing was actually just to get some of my classmates off my back in senior year of high school. Um, I at the time said I wanted to be a CEO because I had big aspirations and most of the women in my hometown were uh, encouraged to be teachers or nurses. And I was like, nope, I want to do something with stories somehow. I was thinking like movies, media, something like that. I really enjoyed translation works. It was all scattered. And uh, someone told me, uh, I could see you be a book editor. And I was like, oh, yeah, I've been thinking about being a book editor. And that was kind of it. I kind of just held on to it. I even kept it uh, as like a side goal when I went to college. I originally didn't declare a major and was planning on switching from the liberal arts school to the business school of where I attended. And uh, I took one English class and got absolutely hooked. And I knew it was going to get me. I was like, this is my last hurrah of taking English classes before I go into accounting. And it sucked me in. So, um, no, I didn't know I wanted to work in books until I was kind of having my hand forced. And then, um, I got a really beautiful, very serendipitous, totally unqualified for internship with Simon and Schuster UK. Um, when I studied abroad, it was a placement program and they liked my resume enough to let me work in their editorial team for a month. And that's when I realized what I wanted to do in books. So like the whole time I'm thinking like, oh, book editing, it's story. I'm good at grammar. I'm good at language. I'm going to go, go, go. And uh, it wasn't until I was reading through the mail sent to authors and having to resend it to agents the entire time and understanding the relationship between the agent and the author and the agent and the editor that I was like, oh, I would want to work in that capacity. Maybe not working on the bottom line of here's how to make the publishing house profitable, but really encouraging the writer and the creative to understand the industry they were entering. Um, so that's a long way of saying that's what I do. Uh, I worked with agencies for a large part of my career, and then I moved to a hybrid publisher uh, where I made assignments for all of the editorial work. So if a word was written or revised, I was the person recruiting that talent to their project to make sure they had the best hands and determining the scope of the work involved. And uh, all of that has led me to a really niche output where I work with authors and publishing teams alike to understand like, these are the resources, these are the proven practices that will get you where you want to go. 
you can't control everything, but you can control what you can control. And let's make sure that's the best strategy you have. So now I do a lot of consulting work rather than the editing I said I was going to do at the start. Awesome. I have a couple of questions for you. So you mentioned that yeah. <laughs> you realized early on that you wanted to be a book editor or that book being a book editor was attractive to you. What was your concept of what a book editor was back then and what what versus what it is now? Like what does a book that, editor do? What did you think a yeah. book editor did? What what does a book editor editor actually do? Well, okay, let's talk about how book editors are presented in rom-com media that's my favorite way to like visualize it because every single rom-com has a woman working in media and she writes she edits she attends the galas every single one so there's like this push of like you can have it all you can have the career and you can have the creativity and you can have the guy at the end and so like that was my interpretation of a book editor for a long time have you got the guy at the end (laughs) and i got the guy at the end yeah exactly (laughs) What wouldn't I love? Uh, You're living a rom com. <laughs> oh, if only I would love the Nancy Myers Nora Ephron aesthetic to take over my apartment, but it's a lot of gray. Um, okay, sorry. Yeah, Book so, editor concept no. then versus what it is. Yes. So my concept was the um, the romanticized version, the glamorous one, and the reality is when I was working in agenting work which is close to editing enough because you do the early versions and then you have to sell it whereas the editor in the current model has to do the heavy work and then sell it again to the reader public right so i was two stages before and uh when you say sell it to the reader public what do you mean i'm talking about uh there's two levels so in in the acquisitions editor, which is a totally different kind of editor than developmental line copy proof acquisitions editor is someone who gets a book thrown on their desk or now in their email. And someone's like, I wrote this book, you should publish it. And they go through it and they have to make that decision. And even if they fall in love with it, even if they think it is the best thing in the world, they have to sell it to two different parties. The first party they have to sell it to is the rest of their acquisitions team. So the publishing house that is going to promote it um, and say, we should put this in this catalog and this is how much we should pay for this book. And this is how much it's going to make for us on the other side. You have to pitch and sell to your colleagues and they are all pitching and selling their own books that they have also fallen in love with. Um, Ultimately, the decision comes down to what is the most profitable engagement for the publishing house as a company. Then they have to deliver on that profitable engagement, right? So they need to make sure Who's that the marketing team- Who's responsible for delivering on it? The entire publishing house, but a okay. lot of it comes down to the editor to make sure, the acquisitions editor to make sure that the author is continually engaged. That's a relationship thing. So um, okay. they kind of curate doula, Sherpa, the author through this to make sure that they stay engaged. They take uh, the care that they need to in marketing because sometimes the marketing team has other initiatives that they have to prioritize by the publisher. Um if you have a James Patterson book coming out, your Joe Schmo book is not going to get the same attention if it's going for the same week by the same publisher. Um, it's a brutal game in that way. So 
the editor has to sell at every point. Like, this is why we bought this book. This is how it's going to go. And ultimately get everyone else on board so that when the book launches, there are sales that go through, that it becomes what it could have been from the start rather than fizzling out halfway through production and being left on a shelf somewhere. Got it. Um, I have two questions for you and they're very different from each other. One of them is you talked about the four different roles or the four different kinds of editors that there are. Could you just break down what each of those different kinds of editors does? Because I would imagine they're very different. You said developmental line, copy, and proof. Well, and then there's acquisition. So there's five. Yeah. So you're not, uh, what I think is going to make this easier to understand is like, there is the editor role in the agent capacity. So like who are, who's the manager of the author? That person is called an editor, right? They are kind of wearing all hats, including account management and relationship management and all that stuff. Developmental line copy and proof are actually technical endeavors. So a developmental edit is um, someone or a task that goes through and identifies content gaps, uh, content strengths, particularly. Um, We'll also make sure that anything in a certain spot actually belongs in that spot. And I'm not talking about a fact here or there. I'm talking about actual chapters, plot devices, or if it's nonfiction, like this is how the reader is going to understand your journey in nonfiction, or this is how the reader is going to understand the content you're teaching them. Um, Developmental looks at the bigger scope and pieces it together like a puzzle. So it can go to line. A line editor is going through line by line, doesn't care about the structure in the same way. What they want to understand and make sure that the reader understands is who the author is. What's their authority? What's the voice they're trying to use? What is the sound of the voice in your head when you look at those pages on your Kindle in your hand, whatever it is? Um, All of that has to do with the content itself. In some way. So the structure, the complexity, the simplicity, and then the voice. Um, your copy editor is going through on a much, much more like a, like I think of it like a black ops strike team coming through and making sure that every single fact lines up. So if your character in fiction is eating pizza two pages before, they're not eating ramen on the next section. Uh, it has to have that continuity. If you're doing, what about in prescription nonfiction? How does the, yeah, sorry, you brought to go there. Yeah. Uh, they are looking for factual accuracy. They're looking to make sure that you have the details there and you are using clear grammar. You're not misconstruing anything. Um, it often veers into research in that capacity. Uh, so if you're hiring someone freelance, you have that very clearly delineated for scope creep. Um, proofreading, totally different set. It's almost into production. Proofreading is saying, uh, let's look at this, make sure it is coherent. The typos are at a minimum amount. Uh, I'm glad you said really, that. Yeah, there really won't be a book without a minimum or without a typo. That. The thing yeah. that I tell clients is like the industry standard is 99% error free. 
And honestly, all it does is let the nerds like me who find a typo in a book feel really smart because it went through all the stages and you caught it on the other end. Um, People do that. People love to find typos in books. So give them that victory. It doesn't need to be perfect when you put it out. That sounds like a cop out, but, uh, but it is. The, the, the truth of the matter is that uh, there is, there are no books that are put out air free. No, there's not a single one. Um, so a proofreader is making sure that that is the 99% error free objective. It um, sounds to me when you describe the first three jobs and yeah, these are not a person. These are a, a, like a function of a, like mm-hmm. a job, like a, a, a particular task. Um, the first three are done by ghostwriters. Developmental part, yeah. line and copy editing. Um, For the most part, all the, yeah. the ghostwriters that I've talked to, that's been like that. They, they say that they do that. At least that I can think of all the ghostwriters I've talked to. They say that they do that. And then proof editing is what, like, so our uh, Stonecrest, we don't do ghostwriting. We take ghostwritten work and produce it. Uh, proof editing is the one kind of editing that we do do. Yeah, it's uh, proofreading, but yes, yes. Um, so you're right. Ghostwriters usually do developmental line and copy, um, and they are functions of a job. So an acquisitions editor will frequently be asked to do all of that as part of their job um, for the books that they acquire on behalf of the publishing company. So they will take every round through that they are asked to do. Um, but you have people on the freelance market who are line editors by trade. They do line edits day in, day out. You have people yeah. who do developmental edits day in, day out. Copy editors will do books, but they'll also do marketing. Like it switches through pretty easily, but that is a technical skill that they excel at. And that's something people need. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is very, very interesting. Um, so you said the acquisition editor has to be able to do all these things. I feel like some of these things are so varied. It doesn't benefit anyone for the same person to be doing them. Uh, like, like, a, like proofreading is so different from developmental editing. It requires a completely different personality type. Like a proofreader is somebody that can't read something without spotting the errors. Like if you, if you're not, if you're not wired that way, you shouldn't be a proofreader. <laughs> Bingo. Yeah. So uh, here's my, this is my own little soapbox that I go on anytime that I'm doing team building or matchmaking for an author who's self-publishing. And it's like, I have this great editor that I love working with. Your proofreader should be someone so uninvolved in this game uh, that they don't want to uh No, it's not that they don't want. It's just that they don't have any skin in the game. So they don't naturally elide over the errors because they haven't gone through the earlier drafts. You want someone who has that uh, pension for really meticulously noting every single aesthetic element on the page. It's not about the context. It's about the content like on the actual screen, page, whatever it is. Um, So I every time we'll tell someone you are not uh, encouraged to use the same person as an editor 
who would then be a proofreader. I think proofreading really belongs to the section of production that comes after the manuscript is just as good as it's going to get, not perfect, as good as it's going to get. And then it goes into the layout stages of making it a product. Um, yeah, that's yeah your developmental line and copy edit. Copy edit can go towards proofreading, but it should be developmental in line, different person, proofreading, totally different. You talked about the relationship between the author and the acquisition editor. What does the author have to do like in a good, in a good situation? What does the author have to do for the acquisition editor? Oh gosh, so much, so much. And honestly it's reciprocal and it depends on the power dynamic involved. So um, if you are a debut author and you are a debut author who gets a book deal, they pay you in advance. That makes you feel so tingly and happy when you see it. Um, that you're like, I will do anything for this to work. They're probably going to ask you for anything. They're probably going to say, okay, you're doing these podcast numbers. You're doing this marketing. You're doing this. You are doing the profession of being an author at that point. Um, and you are going to have to have skin in the game financially as well. So you're going to have to pay for these things. Um, like what, what things would they have you pay, have the author pay for? Um, it's, it depends on the budget that they're allowing for Can you. Can you just give me um, an example? Yeah. So headshots, uh, sometimes a lot of debut authors invest in their own marketing because the publishing house does not have the investment capital ready for them. Um, right. And that is a conflict of interest. So on the flip side of this, if we're talking about a power dynamic between the acquisition editor and the publishing house and the author, if you have someone who has 70 plus New York Times bestselling titles and those authors do exist, you see them in every airport, they are much more likely to say, no, I'm not doing that. You guys take care of this. And then that marketing team has to come up with an entire campaign to make sure that that book continues the streak of 70 something plus New York Times bestsellers. Yeah, you have a baked in audience at that point, but they need to know the book is coming out and that it is new. It's not a reprint of an old title. So the marketing team at the publishing house is going to have to decide where the funds are going to go, right? And the acquisition editor, regardless of the situation, has to be the mediator between the author and the rest of the publishing house. So the acquisition editor, if you're... um one of those muckety-muck big-name authors uh, who is a brand all to themselves, you're going to have to sit there and go, yes, we are working on it. We are getting that forward. We are, you're going to be tasked with making them happy. Uh, on the flip side, your debut author who got that special tingly advance and they feel like they've won the lottery, they finally accomplished their dream of becoming a professional author, they're going to have some hard knocks during this and they're going to have to have someone shepherd them and tell them it's okay. You're still doing great. Your book has merit. Your book, your book has worth. Um, like so what are the hard cases, knocks? Oh, uh, one, most debut authors feel entirely isolated. And I think that is the biggest shame because we talk about historic successes in literature in groups you have Shelley Byron and Mary Shelley. You have the Bloomsbury Group. You have Shakespeare and the King's Men, which we're not even getting into the authorship question. Um, you have the Beatniks. 
you have the lost generation. Like people do better creative work in pockets. And the bookseller, which is the UK version of Publishers Weekly, did a uh, study, I think a year ago. It may have studied the 2021 author market and been released in 2022. And it discussed how often debut authors felt abandoned, isolated, and like no one understood them. In fact, there were increased spikes of depression among debut authors than any other author sect. So um, the acquisition editor and the agent, if there is one involved, really have that emotional task of keeping the author feeling supported and moving forward and also not over-promising and under-delivering. If anything, they need to over-deliver and under-promise to keep the expectations steady. The hard thing is the debut author probably came in with that romanticized version of what it means to be an author. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Man, this is just so foreign for me because uh, from the beginning, I was self-published. The exception was I did one traditional book deal uh, in 2020 and learned a lot from that. Um, one is probably enough for me. Uh, yeah. How do you, how did you feel on the other side of that experience? It was tough to see that they sold a hundred thousand dollars worth of books and I made no money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Did they give you an advance out of curiosity? No, No, that was, yeah, I think that was bad. We did not get an advance. So then they gave you like a small cut of royalties from the start. Yeah. Yeah. But with a but with a reserve. I'm probably not supposed to talk about this, honestly. That's fair. That's fair. Um, we can talk about that another time. But yes, it is very, it's very, very, very normal for the advance to be the only money that a debut author sees. Oh, I know that. I do know that. I yeah. was fully, yeah, I was fully aware of that going in. For me, the 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 goal of being traditionally published was always just for the clout. Because I mm-hmm. I have known since I started, I have known how to make money as an author, uh, doing it the self-published route. And mm-hmm. having Simon and Schuster on a book that I'm that I wrote gets me into more places than not having it. And so oh, it was almost like a I wasn't upset. I wasn't tremendously like I wasn't like upset. I was just like, okay, this was the learning experience. Like this is a not, this is not a worthwhile path for me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, however, the, the one way that it was worthwhile was, uh, I have a book with Simon and Schuster on it and me on it. And mm-hmm. I can, you know, go to different places where you might speak or it's, it's more helpful when you're having a conversation with someone who's never heard of you before, doesn't know who you are. They didn't, it's not warm. They didn't get introduced to you by somebody you're approaching them. And you can be like, yeah, here's here's one of my books. See, Simon Schuster published it. Like, it just it helps lubricate the conversation a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's the biggest. I, I did end up making money off of it, and honestly, it was it, it was good. Like, it, I it was good. It was good money that I made. But um, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't have a hankering to do it again. <laughs> I think that's very fair. And I do think that the clout and the acceptance and hitting that level of um, namesake community, okay? Like we're talking about 
people who are published by Simon and Schuster, the people who are published by Macmillan, Hachette, HarperCollins, Penguin Rittenhouse, the U.S. Big Five. Um, that's an accomplishment. That's a massive accomplishment. You went through everything else to get there. At the same time, it's not going to serve every single author's needs or expectations. And um, so I'm clearly sitting in front of my bookshelf. And if we talk about how there are 50 imprints under each of those publishing houses at minimum, um, and your book has a Atria, which I love this book, so I don't feel bad saying this. It has an Atria Books uh, binding on it. I would say more than nine out of 10 uh, non-publishing professionals would have no idea which publishing house Atria belongs to. They just see that it is traditionally published in some way. And I think, and this might skew our conversation a little bit, I think that is the greatest benefit available to hybrid and self-published authors in today's space is that most people, unless it has the actual penguin on the binding or says the name of the overarching publisher on it, um, your readers don't care. Your readers don't care what uh, imprint published you as long as you were published by someone who says they have taste. And most times they will take it at face value. Um, So if you create a really beautiful book and it's just not moving forward through the traditional space for factors beyond your control, you can publish that, self-publish it, hybrid publish it, whatever it is, and ensure that the quality is gorgeous. And your reader is still going to be impressed. They just don't want to see something that looks like it was stapled together at your latest Kinko's. Like they just want something that looks good and promises to deliver based upon the aesthetic that the content inside is worth the financial investment or the time investment, whatever it is. Yeah. For me in the uh, kids book world, my strategy for making sure that my books are good is uh, I called it performance-led publishing. So essentially, I mm-hmm. perform the book before I publish it, or I perform the book as I'm publishing it, so that I'm getting live feedback from my audience on the book, making sure that, like, are the jokes landing? Okay, that part dragged on, I need to shorten it, all that kind of stuff, like, through classroom performing of the book. And um, and the beauty is it, it pairs so nicely with self-publishing because... I could put out a book that I think is right and then perform it in 12 classrooms and a week later go, okay, I know all the changes I need to make to this book. I make the changes and everybody that bought the first book got a signed first edition that's never going to be in print again. But everybody Mm -hmm. that buys the book from here on is getting a a tighter, funnier version. Uh, And so... um, I've never heard anybody talk about this, but uh, I think for me, it's just worked so well. It meshes so nicely with my personality because I am whatever the Mm -hmm. opposite of a perfectionist is, which is bad in so many ways. But in this particular way, it's good, which is like I will put something out that is not perfect because I can perfect Mm -hmm. it as I perform it. (laughs) Yeah. And you can refine it and refine it and it stays entirely your own. You're not subject to the forces larger than what you immediately know. Yeah. And I, I just, it started with the philosophy of like, okay, I know that I like being an author, 
because I, well, I've always liked making stories. I've always liked doing story art. And uh, my little brother, Tristan, was four years old when I was 17, and I started making the first book. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I love performing for Tristan. I wonder if more kids would enjoy this. And then I started performing it to other kids, and I was like, I love doing this. Um, And I forgot where I was going with this, but I think it was um, that uh, it just meshed so nicely for me to be like, oh, this is what it was. I wanted to just beat my head against the, the actual audience. Instead of going through some massive process where I lose all control and I'm just hoping that the professionals who are walking me through know what they're talking about. And then I get on the other side of it and X number of copies were printed and then it either passes or fails on their professional expertise. For me, Mm -hmm. just as a kind of more hustly, grindy, motivated type of person, I was like, I could just go straight to the audience and be like, what do you think of this page? What do you think of this page? Do you like this joke? Like, what do you think Mm -hmm. of this sentence? Like, do you like when the characters, what was your favorite part? Oh, you liked when the characters did that? Uh, And then I'm just like, all right, that's the book. (laughs) Yeah, you workshop it. You workshop it through an actual reader base instead of among other writers in that sense. Like, I think that's what most people think of for like MFA. Yeah. And I did that with, um, so I did that with most of my books, but then I, I really got a handle on like, okay, this is what kids like in a book. I know we pivoted. Now we're talking about kids books. I'll get back to our main topic here in a second. We're good. Um, (laughs) but I was like, okay, this is what kids like in a book. What do adults want a kid's book to be? And I was like, and that's one of the things about kids books is you're serving two completely different audiences at the same time. You have to be very Mm -hmm. appealing to the parent who is the one forking over the dollars while also Mm -hmm. being so appealing to the kid that they're, the parent is like glad they bought that book because their kid can't stop reading it. And those are, they have, they're not aligned. Parents and children are not aligned in their interests. Um, Mm -hmm. A kid's book. (laughs) Parents want a book that is going to teach something. And kids want a book that is going to make them squirt milk out of their nose. And that is the (laughs) only, those are the only interests that need to be served. (laughs) (laughs) But you know them, you know what the interests are and you can find a way to weave them together. I think exactly. My best comparison, since I'm much less versed in children's books than you, my best comparison is when you start, like, probably middle school, realizing the dirty jokes embedded in kids' movies the whole time, because they needed a reason to make your parents pay to go to the theater and actually feel good about the time that they spend sitting in the chair next to you. So then, like, the kid is looking at the funny stuff, and the parents are like, oh, that actually is enjoyable. I actually enjoyed it. Yeah. I'm very influenced by that ideology. I I grew up watching all the behind the scenes uh, stuff for Pixar and DreamWorks and everything mm-hmm. and hearing them talk about how they make these movies for the parents, um, you know, so that the parents want to go see the, the parents want to take their kids to a Pixar movie or to a DreamWorks movie because they know that they will laugh too. And I was like, okay, okay. And um, if you look at negative reviews of my books, one of the common threads is that there's too much for the adults in the books. Like they're like, Oh, this joke was for adults, not for kids. And I'm like, yes, that's correct. Like, that's the point. I want you to laugh too. (laughs) 
believe it or not, I don't want you to be in pain when you're reading to your kid. I want you to both enjoy the experience. Yeah. 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 But anyways, uh, that what I found was uh, parents want a book to teach something. So, um, mm-hmm. so the way that I've married those two uh, desires is instead of teaching, I, inse- I, I, ins- I instead of striving to teach, I strive to accept. So I want to, this is classic show. Don't tell. I want to mm-hmm. make something that a parent is like, Oh my gosh, look at all the themes. Like look at the, look, look, the kid, the character was disobedient and now they have consequences. And it's like, <laughs> awesome. That's what the parent wants in the book. They want to show, they want the book to show that like when you disobey mom and dad, there's consequences or something like that. The theme like that. Yeah. Um, but a kid, it's like, like, to be attracted to a kid, you got to make the reason the character disobeyed so relatable. And also, mm-hmm. you got to make the consequences so funny. And that's what's going to keep their attention. So the best example for this for me is a book I made called Harper Hears No. I wrote it with 30 moms. I got a group of 30. Because this was right after I made my first book, Billy the Dragon. And I was like, okay, I, <laughs> I think I know what kids want in a book. What do parents want? I started a thing on my Facebook where I was like, Hey, I just want a group of moms to walk with me through as I make a book for this group of moms. If you join, uh, you'll get a free copy of the book. Um, I just want to like make something that is for you guys aligned with what you want a kid's book to be. And so I got a group of about 30 moms. It was like in and out of, you know, on the heights of it, there'd be like 60 moms in participation. And then 30 was as low as it got. Um, and, uh, it was 12 weeks long and every week I would go live and I'd be like, okay, this is everything I worked on this week. Uh, what do you guys think of this? What do you think of this? What do you think of this? And over the course of 12 weeks, I made Harper Hears No all about, cause the parents wanted a book about disobedience and mm-hmm. there's like potty humor in this book, which is like yes. a big turnoff for parents. But I was like, what do you want more? Like, do you, do you want a book? that is going to teach, that is going to incept this idea that like, there is a reason mom and dad tell you something. And when mom and dad tell you something more often than not, it is because of a danger that you don't see. So you just need to trust mom and dad when they tell you don't do this or do do this. Do you want a kid to read that book 800,000 times because they love the potty humor? Yes, you do. Even though you don't want that, you do want that. (laughs) okay but potty humor is also the best like that's what you remember laughing about as a kid so the fact that we have this fear of having other generations enjoy it like they're never gonna not enjoy it it is the baseness of human existence like let's talk about it let's laugh yeah yeah exactly anyways sorry i don't know why we got on topic of uh, no no no, you're good i enjoyed it and also i will look up harper here's now so yeah yeah check it out um it's not my best illustrated book, that's for sure. Um, but yeah. it is my it before before Lucas the Dinosaur and before I want to be a nurse when I grow up. So I want to be a nurse when I grow up is a book I wrote with a nurse influencer. So he had a huge mm-hmm. audience. So that book sold really well for for the sake of he had a huge audience. Um, so aside from that book, and then Lucas the Dinosaur is my most recent bestseller. Uh, where that one got promoted on social media and just so much work went into promoting that book. The, mm-hmm. the, the bestseller for the years between Harper Hears No and Lucas the Dinosaur was Harper Hears No. Harper Hears No was outselling everything else that I was doing because of a combination of parents 
wanted a book that taught the value of obedience and mm -hmm. kids thought it was really funny. Yeah. 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 Anyways, that makes sense. Um, I wanted this shoot. This is a hard pivot. I wanted to ask you <laughs> to break down as many of the jobs because the topic of this episode is all the different jobs that someone can do in the publishing industry. And we've talked yeah. about the editor. We talked about the acquisition editor and we talked about all these di other different kinds of editing that can be done. Ooh. But what are some of the other jobs that maybe people are not thinking about people that are like, I want to work in book publishing, but all they can think about are agents, editors, and authors. Yeah. Okay. I'm making a list in my head right now. Let's break it into three separate stages of creating a book. So um, they might not be the normal ones you hear of, but I like to break it into writing the book, forming the book, making the book appealable to other individuals beyond just the person who put it on the page. Um, that's where you're going to see your author, your agent, uh, your acquisition editor takes the baton to move into the next stage, but beyond them, you're probably also going to see, uh, freelance, uh, any of them, developmental editor, line editor, book coach, book doctor. Um, you might have someone who excels in query letter drafting. Uh, Courtney mom is like one of my heroes. If you can have that in a professional sense at this day and age, um, but she calls herself a query doula for books. So she'll help you build that whole system. I do something very similar to it where it comes down to more data. Um, but those individuals work in the space of uh, shaping the initial product for production. So creating all the different pieces to go together. Um, you might also see during this stage, there are some people on like Upwork and Freelancer and Fiverr who will read your book and just give you like an evaluation of it or uh, some initial feedback. Yeah. People do that day in, day out. A lot of people do it on Readsy too. Um, but I think personally, your best feedback you're ever going to get is a rejection from an agent or an editor. That's just straight up gold. You're going to be able to see what actually went wrong. So that stage actually has more of the, uh, the traditional players that people think of in the book production stage. So the acquisition editor takes it into a publishing house, publishing team, whatever it is. Um, you're going to have someone who's doing the proofreading and copy editing. So someone technical left brain, but works with words rather than numbers. Um, you're going to have a design team. You're going to have a production production editor or production manager who's going to move it through those stages of layout, binding, all of those. Um, they now exist on your laptop, desktop, whatever you're using, but they're physically envisioning the book. They're not caring so much about the content. They're trying to embody it into the packaging of it. So when it goes on sale, it is ready to go. You're also going to have um, the publisher's office there. So who is the person at the top making all the decisions? What does their team look like? Their assistant, um, their COO, CEO, everything that involves in like a corporate setting too exists here. Um, you're probably also going to see a finance team. You're going to see a, a sales team specifically. 
and the sales team is trying to sell that book on behalf of the publisher to other retailers. So it's not so much about, you know, please stock my book. It's about how many books they're going to stock. So uh, a lot of trade publishing has a deal with remainders or returns. So a bookstore, let's say it's Barnes & Noble, uh, will buy a couple hundred books up front and distribute it through their locations. And then that, anything they don't sell after a certain term, so let's say it's a year, that's generous, but um, they get to sell it back to the publisher. The publisher has to buy it back at a discount since it's been through. So like if you see a book on a shelf at your local independent store and it has that line running through the bottom of it, it has like a black marker, that usually means it was a remainder at a different spot. Um, that entire operation is your operations, sales, and marketing team at a publisher. Like they are making sure that the books continue to sell to the retailers because they don't want to handle the direct-to-consumer sales. Very few publishers have a website on their actual page. It's more common in the small presses. So then that's the book production. We had the book conceptualization, creation, the manuscript. Then you have the book itself, the physical embodiment. Then you have the book selling, okay? So that's the third segment. I think this is an entirely different beast than anyone ever expected. And because of that, you're probably better off using a team that is not inherently built into your publisher most of the time. Um, it depends on capacity and what they can actually prove they have delivered in the past that aligns with your goals as an author. So um, book selling. So the author, to... even a traditionally published author would hire a book selling team? Oh, yeah. People do it all the time. Okay. Uh, book marketing, book PR. Um, they're going to increase the awareness so that they can earn out that advance that they got. Um, and a lot of the bestseller lists in the U S are bought, like they are yes. bought commodities. You gamify them. We talked about this. So, yep. um, those teams specialize in gamifying a specific list. If that's what your readers need to see on the cover to know that they hit that, uh, level of authority when they purchase the book. You're going to pay for that. Um, yeah. One of the projects thing. I'm working on is how can Joe Schmo gamify the one of those uh, major bestseller lists? Because it's easy to gamify Amazon. Um, I have yeah. a strategy for, for hitting Amazon every time. Uh, I've done it organically and gamified. But mm -hmm. no, very few people care whether you've done it organically or gamified. So like, there is a very reliable and repeatable way to do Amazons. But I'm working on the question of how do you do the other ones? How does Joe Schmo yeah. do the other ones? But anyways, I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Continue. No, you're totally fine. Um, there are ways to gamify Wall Street Journal, uh, LA Book Review. Um, the New York Times has even been gamified before, but I think that's more magical beast to and to be clear i just want to say i am not talking uh, uh, about buying your way onto the list the way when most people think about buying their way on the list they're talking about ordering mm -hmm. copies ordering a certain number of copies of your own books such that you hit the list i think that that is rightfully right. rightfully weeded out of the process like amazon has made it so that that's very hard to do 
The other lists have made it so that that's very hard to do, rightfully so. Nobody should be, in my opinion, nobody should be able to do that. That's not what I'm talking about when I say Right, that's why they have the dagger. Yeah, that's what they that's what they mark with the dagger on the New York Times list. Like there was a single buyer who bought a large quantity of this book, and that's why it moved up. Um, so like you saw it when Trump's campaign had a bunch of copies of a book and it boosted him through, but then they gave it to every donor. Like that is the thing that is the buy your way onto the list, gamify. They do notate that. I'm talking about um the teams that understand where they're pulling the data from because it's not every bookstore it's not every book scan so like they do more organic uh sales in those regions in order to build the list that way indie bound is one that does it um so yes trade published authors who maybe don't have the full exposure of the marketing team in-house they will hire teams those people are fantastic to get what they do um, you also have the people who are selling to the bookstores that we mentioned before, but then you also have the book buyers for those bookstores, so the people who get the catalog and have to decide what to stock because there is limited space in a brick and mortar store. Um, and then you have the people who have to stock it and the cashiers. And honestly, I think book selling in the UK is so, so well done and more of a career than the US. I think US gets compared to every other retail store around. Book selling in the UK does more of the personal relationship that you see in more indie stores here in the US. Um, but that is an actual career you can have is giving curated recommendations, building a community around a bookstore, owning a bookstore, or working within one that is locally owned. Um, and then, yeah, I think that there are other ways to do more specialized freelance work within all of this, but you are going to see more jobs than you thought we're just in those three because it's a business start to finish. It is a business. The second that you hand over that book with a contract to something else, it is no longer your uh, brainchild just on page. You are making it a commodity, an evergreen one, something that appeals to people since the Bible was first put onto page. But um, yeah, it's, it's a commodity. My next question for you, Rose, is just what do you think the best um, jobs are that someone who is has a talent for printed media um, that they could go freelance in? So, like, my audience is uh, a, a lot of ghostwriters and aspiring ghostwriters. And mm-hmm. um, what could they be doing freelance-wise that's not just ghostwriting that you think someone like that would probably find fulfilling. I think you should consider coaching one-on-one that uh, isn't you writing and maybe minimal editing. Um, Rachel Heron had several years of her blog where she would do pay, uh, pay transparency for being a published author. And she had so many different income streams there, like having a portfolio resume and uh, career in this stage of publishing in 2023, even is the way to do it. So for ghostwriting, consider uh, building relationships that are beyond just the book. So you're doing blog posts, you're doing long form content, maybe you're doing some interview prep with them. um, But you can also coach people into their ideas. Um, Hosting workshops, great way to do it too, in a bigger scale. So if you're really good at ghostwriting a specific type of book, 
uh, because you understand the mindset of that avatar author who needs your help, get a group of them together, offer one-on-one coaching once a month, and then uh, do weekly group coaching. As I said before, like people think writing has to be this go it alone wolf experience, but uh, you can kind of get your better work when you have a community around you. It is vulnerable and scary in this space. And a lot of people discredit you. You should have friends by your side or at least now, the only way other... to get your better yeah. work is to have a community. Yeah. I think that yeah. people that um, think that writing is the solo endeavor that they, you know, they, they go make something and then it's this unchangeable work that they've created that they now need to get published. I think those people aren't writers. I think that they, mm-hmm. they are, they, they want to be writers, but they don't know, they don't know how to make it work. I agree. I think that, um, and there are a lot of bad experiences, which would probably warrant an entire different conversation about workshops that have toxicity in them that turn people away from sharing their work beyond like it's in their mind, perfect form. Um, but you will get your best work nine times out of 10 as a writer with a community around you. And if you can offer that back to ghostwriting clients in general, um, you will make a whole lot of change in that space. Um, I think ghostwriting honestly doesn't need to diversify as much as the others, uh, in a freelance basis, just because you are doing something that's so many people say they can do and they are not at your skill set. Like you are an entirely different beast of a uh, writer. You don't just do your own voice. You can capture someone else's. And that is like ventriloquism in this day and age. Um, so yeah, I don't think you need to diversify as much. I do think that there are ways though, if you are interested in publishing and going, but I'm not a writer, I'm not an editor. I highly encourage anyone take that thought out of their head, put it in a box and stow it under their bed because they will do better uh, business operations than the creative writers. Everything takes balance. Everything uh, takes all skill sets, considering that it is a commodity. It is a business and you can do it even if you're not the writer yourself. Yeah. For me, I think one of the biggest gaps that I see Mm. is helping people that don't, that, that helping people that are not getting a traditional publishing deal, uh, Mm -hmm. sell their book without having to already be famous. I think I, every, very few people that I've talked to have any idea how to do that. Uh, the authors themselves don't know how to do it. It's a huge gap in the market. Um, mm-hmm. there needs to be more professionals that have really good answers. Like there needs to be more freelancers that have really good answers to those questions that can help unknown authors sell lots of copies of their book. It is the hard problem that like, uh, it's, it, it's, it amazes me how much effort is done on the creation side versus how much, how much then it's like, all right, hope it works. It's like someone just spent. Someone just spent, you know, $70,000 getting their book made. No idea how to sell it. Oh, yeah. But also, in their mind, a book has a draw. Because we've always had this 
understanding that books are commodities and you will find them. There's this really romantic vision of walking through a bookstore and just stumbling upon a book you didn't know existed and it's gorgeous. That's great. But also that's not the way it works anymore. So like most times people will see your book for the first time as a thumbnail on a screen. Make sure your thumbnail is in front of the right audience. Um, You should invest more in your marketing than in your book production. Just saying. Um, Yeah, I think that's a good hot take. Yeah, I think you should invest more in your marketing because your book can be gorgeous, but it can be done with less uncertainty in the market value of things. Um, No one predicted TikTok was going to change book talk, all of that. Um, And now TikTok's got its own shop attached to it. So like you probably would have laughed if you heard that five, six years ago. Um, Invest in the people who know what they're doing. Invest in the people in marketing who have the understanding of the changes ahead um, and the flexibility to do it. Don't just rigidly commit to the old patterns of publishing. Books are made the same way. Selling books are not done the same way. Yeah. And I think generally speaking, generally speaking, uh, Mm -hmm. what, whoever, whoever, the, the kinds of marketing coaches that have really good ways of helping people bolster their personal brand. Those Mm -hmm. are, those are people that are going to help people be able to move copies of their book. Uh, Oh yeah. So like for me personally, I think about book marketing, less about book marketing and more about author marketing or just the author building a strong personal brand online. Yeah. Well, it is, especially if you're talking about the nonfiction self-publishing or hybrid publishing space, it is about your brand, right? Like people want to know why they should trust you because you don't have, as we discussed earlier, that Simon and Schuster binding on it. Um, They need to know what gives you the credibility to both say these things and that they should take them and do them, not just let it go in one ear out the other. That's right. I think that's a good place to end it, Rose. Thank you so much for talking to me about this. It's really enlightening to hear about all these different job functions within the publishing world and um, what, you know, what different paths a person could take within it. That's not just writer, agent or editor. Um, Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for your good questions. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Where can uh, listeners find you if they want to check you out some more? Yeah, I am on um, Instagram at r.w.freel. It will be on my website, but my website is easy to remember. It's uh, forward, like the forward of a book, litconsulting.com. And that's where you can find out how we can work together on self-publishing, hybrid publishing trade, and also making sure that you are connected with that community that you are looking for. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Timmy. Have a good night.